Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Joe Allen, who was my guest back in June 2021 in episode number 61. As a brief refresher, Joe served on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Birch Bayh, Democrat, Indiana, securing passage of the Bayh-Dole Act. After leaving the Senate staff, Joe was executive director of Intellectual Property Owners, Inc., where he worked to create the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit before going to the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he became director of the Office of Technology Commercialization. In 2008, Joe founded Allen & Associates, a consulting firm specializing in technology management slash IP issues. Additionally, Joe currently leads the Bayh-Dole Coalition, a broad-based organization of university tech transfer offices, research institutions, and entrepreneurs that champion and protect that landmark law. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome back to the podcast, Joe. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to see you again. Well, it's great to see you too, Joe. And thanks so much again for being on the podcast. And Joe, I wanted to have you back on the podcast because in the last few months, several different things have occurred, which make it seem like there is an unprecedented assault taking place on America's innovation ecosystem. Specifically, one of the first items I wanted to discuss with you are the march and right requests that have been filed before the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to allow for generic competition for the prostate cancer drug Xtandi. And for those who may not be familiar, Xtandi was invented at the University of California at Los Angeles using grants from the U.S. government, and the drug is currently marketed by Estellas. Now, the cost of Xtandi is significantly lower, and according to some reports, as much as 31% lower outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. And so this is the second time that March and Wright requests have been filed for Xtandi on the grounds that it's not reasonable to charge U.S. residents more for Xtandi than residents in other high-income countries. So, Joe, what I wanted to ask you was, can you talk a little bit about this latest round of requests and how they fit into the long history of proposed misuse of margin for price control? Sure, I'm happy to. And actually, just back to what you started with, uh, that, that was a great observation because what, what a lot of these issues we're going to talk about today have in common is there's, a, there's an unprecedented attack on our patent system. And a lot of the same people that we'll talk about with the TRIPS waiver and now the March and Right saying are the same people. And they feel that patents are unfair, that uh, it's sort of a collectivist view of history as opposed to individual entrepreneurs. It's, it's back to the old, you didn't create that. You remember, we heard that. And, We've heard that several times now. And I think one thing that's happening is a lot of people in this country now don't make anything anymore. They don't even know people that make anything. So a lot of folks are really susceptible to thinking that, that they're being unfairly uh, uh, taken advantage of when somebody commercializes a federally funded invention. 
So, um, you know, that's, that's one thing I think all these have in common. Uh, back to your, your point, um, to back up a little bit more, uh, the Bayh-Dole Act was passed in 1980. And I was fortunate to be on Senator Birch by staff and work with Senator Bob Dole. And it was, it was passed in a, in a climate very much like we have right now. The American economy was in a tailspin. Uh, we were losing, uh, we'd lost our industrial heartland, which actually uh, overwhelmed Japan and Germany in World War II. Uh, we had Japan and Germany taking technologies away. And the other thing we found was at that time, the government was funded about 50% of all the research and development in the country. And Senator Bayh was a liberal Democrat. Senator Dole was conservative Republican. And we were shocked to find out that of those billions and billions of taxpayer dollars, no products were coming out the other end because we had a philosophy very much like with exactly what these people want to put back in place now. The philosophy was if the government funded research, it would be taken away from the creator and given to everybody for free. What a wonderful idea. The problem was nothing was being developed because without an entrepreneur taking their time and their talents and, and huge risk in their funding, the government is not funding products. It's funding ideas about products. So basically, the Bayh-Dole Act said, we're now not going to give these technologies away. We're going to let universities and small businesses that make them with federal funding own them to commercialize them. And the uh, Economist Technology Quarterly said it was the, one of the most profound laws passed in the last half century that more than anything helped reverse America's precipitous slide into industrial irrelevance. So it's been a bedrock of our, our, our innovation policies. It literally has helped turn the U.S. around. Um, we were losing markets, and now we're dominating markets. So uh, Baidol also had another provision called margin rights. And again, it's, we have to remember what the world was like back in 1978 when we drafted Baidol, which a lot of people weren't even alive then. But let me, let me give you, a, I was, so I remember, I remember it vividly. Basically, universities had, had, didn't have a tech transfer office because they didn't have anything to transfer. Just a few universities did, Stanford, MIT, and even they had a very small operation. So when Baidol passed, we said, look, we're really concerned now. We want to make sure that dominant companies don't take advantage of inexperienced universities to license the technology to suppress it. Now, why would they do that? Well, perhaps you have a breakthrough technology, which is going to antiquate what you've got on the market. So Congress said, we want to make sure that, that in, in those cases, if somebody's not making a good faith effort to commercialize it, the government can march in and force the university to license somebody else. Now, margin rights wasn't, didn't originate with Baidol. It goes back to the Truman administration, because even though the government took inventions away, it became apparent pretty quickly that policy wasn't working. So uh, President Truman, President Kennedy, President, President Nixon allowed people to petition for invention rights for what they'd created before Baidol. And even then they said, but if you're not moving it to commercialize it, the government can march in. And if the government does march in, it can force you to license it to other people on reasonable terms. All right. So that, that's going to be a key, that's going to be a key uh, uh, phrasing for what we're going to talk about now. So basically, Baidol said the government can march in on four circumstances. If the patent owner is not making good faith efforts to have it commercialized within a reasonable time, again, back to making sure you're actually trying to use it. And we define practical application, again, to make sure you're licensing it on reasonable terms. In other words, we can't have a university say, hey, if you, if you hire the president's daughter as a CEO, or if you give us $10 million up front, because again, that seems crazy. But in 1980, these people were inexperienced. 
The other three triggers apply to the patent owner, which is mainly a university, and the licensee, which is developing it. Okay, the first trigger only applies to universities, the patent owner. The other three triggers apply to the patent owner and the licensee. And I'm sorry to get so far down in the weeds, but if I don't do this, what the opponent's saying won't make any sense. The other triggers say, okay, if you can't meet a health or safety need, in other words, you, you, you have commercialized it, at least you did a great job, but now we got COVID and you can't produce enough vaccine. So the government can march in, you know, that would be an example. Or you can't meet the need of a federal regulation. Uh, perhaps it has to be used for, for our pollution control and, and you can't produce enough. And the third one is under Bayh-Dole, we give a preference for companies that are going to manufacture the product in the U.S., so if you said, okay, I'm going to make it in the U.S., but you didn't, the government can march in. Okay, so that's the way Baidol worked for 20 years. No one questioned it. 20, 20 years after Baidol, so in, in today's terms, it would be in 2042, okay? From today to 2042, the law works, as I just said. But in 20, 20 years later, these two uh, academics, uh, Arno and Davis at Loyola University, put out a paper. And what they alleged was that Baidol had a secret meaning. And it was a secret meaning that was so secret that not Apparently, was, no were, one told you about it since you were right. so intimately involved in getting Baidol passed. So. And they didn't tell Senator Bayh or Senator Gold, but there was this, this secret meaning that what they, they had discovered. And they published this paper. And I remember vividly at that time, I was working at the National Technology Transfer Center in Wheeling, West Virginia which was set up by Congress. And, and Norm Lacker, who did a lot of the drafting on Baidol, sent me their, their law review article. It goes on for like 30 pages. And I read it and I literally laughed because their theory is based on not Baidol. It's based on looking at other hearings for either that were opposed to Baidol or other hearings on bills that failed. And so they built this whole philosophy, basically not looking at the legislative history of Baidol, but other legislative histories, Okay. So they put it out there. I just filed it and laughed and said, you know, okay, I guess you can publish whatever you, whatever you want. Then what happened was they wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post called Paying Twice for the Same Drugs. And at that point, I got a hold of Senator Bayh. Now, I, I was working at the National Tech Transfer Center. Senator Bayh was a law firm. I said, Senator, hey, this is serious. This, these people are, are, are completely misinterpreting what your law does. Because, you know, again, the Bayh-Dole Act was to make pu public-private partnerships. It was to make industry, you know, it was, it was actually to help give incentives for companies to, to, to actually take risks. And what these people were saying was Bayh-Dole is really a trick. That um, if you're stupid enough to commercialize the government technology, anybody can come along later saying, hey, Lisa, we don't like your price. And then they can ask the government to take it away from you and license your rivals. So it would, it would kill Baidol. It would kill innovation. No one would ever do that. Exactly. So anyway, this, I'm sorry this is so long-winded, but if you don't know the background, it's hard to figure out what it's like. It's like Hamlet. If you come in in, in Act 4, you're lost. So anyway, Senator Baidol immediately wrote, and I, the, the Washington Post wouldn't let us do an op-ed. They made us just do a letter to the editor, which is much shorter. Okay? That's the way it works. That's the way the game is played. So Bayh and Dole came back immediately saying, no, 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 Bayh Dole doesn't, doesn't let the government control prices. There's nothing in the legislative history. There's nothing in the statute. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so what happens? The, the people that oppose Bayh Dole, and, and Ralph Nader was one of the people who hated Bayh Dole, and his, his, his disciples have, have picked up the mantle. Ralph Nader was for the pre-Bayh Dole policies, which is what they want to go back to. They want to say if the government funds research, it should be publicly available. Everyone should have access to it. Isn't that fair? 
and some some magic fairy will come along and turn it into a product, even though that hasn't happened. And let me just give one other data point. At the hearings of Bayh-Dole, we found that not a single new drug had been developed from NIH funding under those policies, not a single drug. Okay, so we've, we've, we've done their theory for 40 years. It didn't work, but they want to go back to it. Okay, so then they start filing petitions at NIH based on this bogus theory that, in fact, if something's not reasonably priced, and there's no definition of that, that the government can then march in and license other companies. And they've done it for a series of drugs. Every one of those petitions has been rejected by NIH, which has looked at the statute and said, no, 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 that's clearly not how it works. In fact, the first march in petition in, in 2004, they actually, uh, NIH had a, a public meeting. They didn't call it a hearing, and they invited Senator Bai, and I went with him. And, and Senator Bai testified about how the law works, and he also looked at the petition that was filed by the critics. And what they had done was, because there's no legislative history backing in, in Bayh-Dole, backing what they did, they, I wrote the Senate Judiciary Committee report on Bayh-Dole. They took two sentences that I'd written on different sections of the bill, combined them out of context, and they actually used that in their petition. And Senator Bai called them out. Senator Bai spelled out in his testimony, this is what you said, this is the other thing, and here's where it actually was in the report, and it actually has the opposite impact. So these are, the kind of, these are the kind of people we're dealing with. So NIH has had about eight or nine of these petitions filed over the years from 2004 to now. Everyone has been rejected in Republican and Democratic administrations. In fact, most were rejected in the Obama-Biden administration. Uh, I, I will correct you on one thing. This is not the second go-round of extending. This is the fifth time this petition has been filed. Fifth time? Wow. It was rejected twice. They filed it at NIH and DOD because DOD also provides some funding for Xtandi at University of California. Both of them rejected it. Then they filed an appeal. That was rejected. Then they came back when the Biden administration came in and refiled the same petition. It's the same petition, but just basically new, new people filing it. So they're 0 for 3 on this, on the same product. So basically, this has been, uh, they filed it as soon as the Biden administration came in. Uh, we're still waiting for the administration to make a decision. But it, it's one of those things that makes you crazy because um, everyone that's looked at this has just dismissed what they're saying. In fact, if you'll indulge me for one more second, uh, last, last fall, the Washington Post has a thing called the fact checker. Glenn Klesser is the fact checker in the Washington Post. So he decided to look into the claims that, in fact, that Elizabeth Warren was, Senator Warren was making, that Bayh-Dole had the secret provision to control drug prices. And so he called me. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I was kind of nervous because, you know, you never know how, how fairly you're going to be treated. But I'll say, I'll say he was a great reporter. He was like what reporters used to be. You could say whatever you wanted. And I was on the phone with him for at least an hour. And I, would, I went through sort of the same thing I'm telling you. And he said, OK, can you document that? I said, yeah. I said, here's, here's, the, here's the link to Senator Bayh's testimony. Here's the link to the report. Here's the link to what NIH has said. Here's the link to all what all the NIH director said. And so he, he, you know, he said, fine. He also obviously talked to the other side. So let me, just, let me just read, if you don't mind, his conclusion on this great theory. And this is coming from the Washington Post fact checker who's, who doesn't have, a, he doesn't have a dog in the fight. You know, he's just looking at this objectively. Here's what he said. In the, in the two decades since Martian Wright was identified as a way to control drug prices, advocates of this approach have struck out every time they've sought to advance it. No administration or court has ever accepted this reasoning. 
for now remains just a theory, not a tool that's ever been used in this way by the federal government, which I thought was just devastating. In fact, if you read the Washington Post, he gives Pinocchios for things that are wrong. This didn't even qualify for Pinocchio. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. It's just a theory. You know, it's not, I can't even take it seriously enough to give it a Pinocchio. So that's where we are. We're, we're waiting for NIH to make the decision. Uh, it's been pending now for a long time, but there's a lot more at stake than just Xtandi because here's the real problem. Uh, well, first of all, if, if, what ha- if, if well, here's where we are in the process. The law says that you filed a petition to march in with the agency that funded the research. And so if they find a reason to march in, then they have to have a public hearing they bring in the patent owner. I mean, it's actually is a, a quasi-legal proceeding. Now, we, are, we aren't at that stage. Right now, they're just deciding whether the petition has any merit. But if they did decide it, which again would be a wrong decision based on the last 18 years, they, they would then do that. If the, if the ruling goes against the patent owner, then they can appeal to the head of the agency. If they lose that, they can go to federal court. So the bottom line is March and Rights is not a magic panacea. It's not going to it's not going to reduce even even if it worked, even if their theory, if somebody said, OK, we don't care about the law, we don't care about everything we've done before. We're just going to do this anyway. There's a whole series of things that have to happen, and it would take years for that to be adjudicated. So people that hold this up as this magic uh, silver bullet that's going to lower drug prices, it's just bogus. The other thing I'll say um, is the real danger of this is. After we passed by Dole, companies didn't rush in to, walk, to work with universities because for 40 years, if you were stupid enough to work with the federal government in any form, if you made an invention, it would be taken away from you. So it took us years to convince companies that this was really real, that you really could trust the government and, and universities as a research partner. That would go completely out, out of the window. It would totally undermine that. Absolutely. So do you think there's any risk that, you know, NIH or might, you know, uh, grant the petition just to have this adjudicated to just finally, you know, enough is enough. Let's have this adjudicated and put to, to bed once and for all. Well, to me, this is just my personal view. I have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I don't ask. That's not appropriate. The law hasn't changed since the last time they rejected this petition under the Obama. Biden. Correct. Yeah. The facts of the case haven't changed. In fact, if you look at how both um, Francis Collins and the Department of Defense rejected it, they went back to the statute. They said, is Xtandi being, is it commercialized? Is, is it available? And in fact, Francis Collins, I thought this was, I thought this was really funny. He actually quoted back the petitioner's own data to show that, in fact, the use of Xtandi is expanding. So they said, look, based on your own data, clearly Xtandi is available. It's being sold on the market. It has been commercialized. So the facts of the case haven't changed. The law hasn't changed. The only thing that may have changed is the politics. And this is what troubles so many of us, because if, in fact, and I'm not alleging this, but if you get people to say, look, we don't care what the law says, politically, this would be a great thing to do. Then our whole society falls apart, because if you can't, if you can't, you know, if you're making investments based on on the statute's going to work, I've done what you said, you're not going to take this away from me. Once you start doing that, the whole basis of our public and private sector alliances unravels. And the final thing I'll say is. This doesn't just apply to drugs. If this genie gets out of the bottle, anybody who makes an invention with government funding can be attacked on the same thing. All they have to say is, look, Lisa, we don't think your price is reasonable. There's no definition. 
So you go to the federal bureaucracy and they say, hey, uh, we don't think this software is reasonably priced because it's cheaper in uh, upper Volta than it is here. So therefore, we're going to license your rivals who are just sitting there waiting to copy what you did. 70% of our licenses and universities go to small companies. 50% of our new drugs come from small companies. These people have to get venture funding. What venture capitalist would ever fund a startup company if it looked like if you succeeded, that anybody can say, hey, we don't like your price. It's not reasonable. And then it would be taken away from you and given to somebody else. Exactly. I mean, it's just insane. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen? But yeah, it's a big issue. Yeah. That's why I wanted to, to have you back on and talk about that. And 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 speaking of, of big issues, here's here's another one that I wanted to ask you about. And this has to do with a department of energy policy that they started implementing last October that require any inventions that result from DOE-funded research and development be substantially manufactured in the U.S. unless the waiver is granted. So, and my understanding is, and correct me, please, Joe, if I'm wrong, is that they implemented this policy of as part of DOE's efforts to bolster domestic supply chains for critical technologies. So, Joe, I'd like your thoughts on this one. Can you discuss some of the concerns uh, that the Baidu Coalition and others have about this new DOE policy? Sure. Um, this is a little bit different. This is a different attack than what we just talked about. There were two attacks on Baidol when we passed Baidol. One, one was from the anti-patent people. The second was from the bureaucracy, because what Baidol did was, you know, again, before Baidol, the government took the invention away, and then they had this waiver process where you could petition the government to get your invention back. Well, that waiver process took 18, to, 18 months to two years to make a decision. Didn't mean you'd get it. It means it took them that long. So agencies like DOE build up a huge staff to oversee these case-by-case reviews. Well, Baidol said, we're not doing that anymore. Automatically, these are owned by universities. So DOE fought Baidol tooth and nail because it was a, it was a jobs bill. And it's not, it's not just jobs. A lot of these agencies, you know, DOE is an agency that, um, despite the name, uh, its culture comes from nuclear weapons research. It's where the, it's where the Manhattan Project came from. If you're working on nuclear weapons, keeping technologies closely held is critical. And I don't blame her for that. It's, you know, again, we don't want the Russians and the Chinese, although the Russians did a pretty good job infiltrating the Manhattan Project, but we won't go there. But again, the culture of DOE is control things, centralized management. The other part of DOE, which people don't realize is most of the DOE laboratories are run by contractors. So there's always been a suspicion in Washington, we better keep an eye on these people. You know, who knows what they're doing? We better really keep an eye on. So DOE has, has, a, has had a history of micromanagement and resistance to Baidol. In fact, after Baidol, there were at least three statutes passed by Congress, uh, many of which by Senator Dole, trying to break the whole micromanagement culture, which has never really been broken. I mean, it's, it's receded somewhat, but it, it keeps coming back. So back to your your point. I'm sorry to be so long winded, but if you don't give some background, it's hard for people to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's like Hamlet. You know, we got to go back to Act One to figure out why you're by stabbing each other in Act Four. So basically, last fall, Baidol has another provision called exceptional circumstances, and exceptional circumstances means okay, suppose the government is actually going to fund something all the way through development, where you don't, where patent rights aren't aren't critical. There's really no risk being taken. You know, you can actually have the thing available for commercialization without the contractor owning it. 
that, that's very unusual. We said, you know, again, Bayh-Dole covers everything. So we didn't want to make just one rule that in some cases may not make sense. But we knew that DOE was liable to abuse that. So we said, okay, if an agency is invoking exceptional circumstances, in other words, the, this funding shouldn't go under Bayh-Dole, we're going to make another, an, a, another uh, way of handling it, that has to be approved by the Department of Commerce. All right. So I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but again, this is, this is the background. So last fall, without any public notice, without any public hearings, without anything, DOE puts a declaration of exceptional circumstances in all their funds, grants, contracts across the board. So you wake up one day, you're at a university, you're a small company, and all of a sudden there's this new provision, which you've never seen before. And it says, okay, if you sell your, if you own a, if you own a DOE invention or you licensed one, if you ever sell your company, you have to get approval from DOE to continue to own the technology. Now that's under the guise of making sure these are not leaking out of the country. Okay. Then they said, and Bidol is antiquated because Bidol is one of the first statutes that said that we give a preference for people who are going to make the product in the United States for an exclusive license. Now, again, most products come out of an exclusive license. In other words, this is something which the technology is inherently valuable. So it's, it's high risk. So we're really going to give this to one person to develop as opposed to a, a process or a more mundane invention, which you may license non-exclusively because it may have multiple applications. So Bidol said domestic manufacturing for the U.S. market for exclusive licenses. DOE says, oh, that's so that's so old, last that's so last year. You know, that's because uh, we're concerned now that technologies are leaking out under non-exclusive licenses. And uh, while Bidol may have been well-intended now, you know, we're we're seeing this thing with new eyes. So now we're going to require that anybody who gets a non-exclusive license has to see if they'll find a domestic manufacturer. And if they can't, they have to come back for a case-by-case waiver. There's two parts of it. The ownership thing was so egregious that that fell of its own weight. Uh, We work with, um, I head the Bayh-Dole Coalition. We work with a lot of university organizations. We talked to the White House staff um, and we said, look, this is crazy. Um, First of all, again, 70% of the licensees are small companies who by their very nature are likely to change ownership. And we said, why? You know, there's nothing in the statute, there's nothing in the law giving the government the right to say whether you can sell your company or not. What the law says is, we don't care who owns the company, but you have to make the product here. As long as you've, as long as you've done that, then get out of our way. The other thing that happened was DOE started losing deals. The DOE laboratories started losing deals, and they let headquarters know about that. So DOE just announced that about a month ago, they were rescinding the ownership part but they were keeping in the non-exclusive licensing part. Now, I'm as much in favor of domestic manufacturing as anybody. In fact, when globalization was in vogue, all these same people in Washington were looking down their nose at us for making things domestically. They said, oh, it should be made wherever wherever it's more competitive. You know, why are you people so nationalistic? You're so old fashioned. Well, you know, we rejected that. Now, Now we're being told, oh, no, no, we need to be even more restricted. Here's the problem, twofold. One of which is Bayh-Dole established a uniform policy across all the agencies. Before Bayh-Dole, agencies like DOE had multiple policies for different programs. And that made people crazy, made companies crazy. It was exactly what you think of the government. So Bayh-Dole said, no more, more. We're going to have, an ex- we're going to have one policy across all the government. You can't have agencies just on their own make up their own policies. 
And, and that's one of the reasons, actually, we wrote a letter back to DOE just last week objecting to this, saying it has no statutory basis. The other thing is licensing's hard. It's complicated. You, you, we, we were talking offline before we started about some of the great technology managers you've had on your program. When you talk to these people, people that think there's folks lined up outside the door at MIT or Stanford or, or anybody, Maryland, and the one complaint companies have is it takes too long. So here's what DOE is doing. By their own admission, you can't find a manufacturer in the U.S. for a lot of their technologies. They don't exist. And, and not only that, remember, if you're selling a product, it has to be, it has to be competitively priced. So you can't have somebody in theory that can make it for you, but when you want to sell it, it's going to cost four times as much as a competing thing because they can't be competitive. So what DOE is doing is it's forcing people on a snipe hunt to go out and look for something that doesn't exist. Then you have to go back for a case-by-case waiver for DOE to, to get approval. So we've objected to that and said, listen, this is not how the law works. You're violating the basic tenet of Bayh-Dole, which is have a uniform policy, and again, it's back to what we talked about margin rights. All these things have a precedent. So if DOE can make up its own policy, why can't everybody else? And it doesn't have to be on domestic manufacturing. It can be on anything. And the one thing we knew about Bayh-Dole was we were very concerned because if you make a university choose between getting funding for research and patent rights, they'll take funding because that's the critical thing that drives the engine. And we didn't want them having to make that devil's choice. Well, that's exactly what these, you know, that's exactly what these exceptions are doing. They're saying, okay, Lisa, you want funding from us? You better play ball. And, you know, the poor tech transfer person can't go to the university president and say, hey, listen, let's, let's turn down hundreds of millions of dollars in funding because, uh, because of this, this clause. Exactly. They can't. So, so anyway, um, that, that's, <laughs> we never run out of things to do, but I'm at the point of life now. I keep fighting, apparently fighting the same battles over and over again. But um, again, there, there are entrenched interests which haven't gone away. And uh, that's just another example of how we have to keep patrolling the frontier all the time. Or once you start giving these things up, you just don't get them back again. So do you think there's a chance that this waiver will be, you know, DOE will take steps to just stop implementing it? Or do you have no idea? It's just wait and see what they do next type of thing. Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. We wrote a public letter. And, I, and in fact, I'm, I'm writing articles about this all the time. I want people to know this is going on. Uh, I think it's important for policymakers to understand this. And again, I'm all for domestic manufacturing. I, I'm, a, I'm an economic nationalist. I have no problem with if American taxpayers funded for something, make it here if possible. But again, the danger is this is going back to what failed before. Washington micromanagement. Decentralized technology management beats centralized management every day of the year. It's the reason we're running rings around China. And once you start accepting that, the micromanagement part, it it starts wrapping the whole system up in bureaucracy and red tape, which is anathema to entrepreneurs. So, you know, uh, again, I'm I'm hoping that um, wiser heads will prevail, but um, they did this under the guise. And I I don't that that's unfair. I think they sincerely want to build domestic manufacturing. I'm not questioning that. But we need to really look at this and take, take, take the facade away and say, okay, but what you're really doing is you're really hurting innovation. And, and the other thing I'd like to mention is they did this without any consultation to the people who actually know what they're talking about. Uh, we, we actually had uh, the Baidol Coalition had the DOE folks were kind enough to brief us. And I said, well, who did you consult with about this? Did you talk to any universities? Did you talk to any small business people? No, they just made it up. They had a theory one day. So anyway, um, 
it always it always concerns me when you have people, and this is very much like we talked about the margin rights thing. Have you ever talked to people that have actually commercialized a drug? Have you ever talked to one of these small companies? They're like, no, 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 they're beneath us. We, we've got this higher view of how things should work. But um, you know, I, I don't have too many days on board, apparently. Apparently. And speaking of waiver, Joe, I know you know that back in March, the office of the U.S. Trade Representative confirmed that a compromise had been reached between South Africa, India, the EU and the U.S. to waive certain provisions of the World Trade Organization's agreement on trips as it relates to intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. Now, while the agreement is said to initially apply to patents on COVID-9 vaccines, there's talk that it may be expanded to diagnostics and treatments. And under this agreement, countries will have to submit an authorization to the WTO listing all covered patents, but they're not going to have to get permissions from the patent owners. Uh, Also, eligible countries will be able to use these vaccines domestically or export them to other eligible countries. So that leads me, Joe, to want to ask you about your thoughts on this decision about the Biden administration with respect to this particular waiver. It's appalling. Um, And actually, it's actually even where you were kind. (laughs) It goes back further than this. I mean, let's go back. You may remember three years ago, people can remember back to 2019. We had a thing called the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it was kind of a big deal here in Ohio. Other people may have heard about it. And it just it spread around the world and there was no no nothing you could do about it. There was no therapies available. There was nothing. So what happened? What we did was the federal government said, hey, this is a this is a crisis. This is a worldwide health crisis. And the Trump administration started Operation Warp Speed, which was headed by NIH. And they said, let's ask some of the leading life science companies can you please help us come up with some something that we can do to, to try to, to remediate this? Because it was shutting. Again, I, I remember it. I guess a lot of people have already forgotten it, but it was kind of a big deal. Uh, we had people shutting down the economy. We had people staying in their houses. Um, you know, the Chinese were sealing people in their houses. It, apparently, a lot of folks have already forgotten that. So what happened? Some of the leading companies that have been working on some promising technologies on their own, said, hey, we're, we'll work with you. And what do these companies do? They stopped other projects because vaccine production is something that most people don't want to get into because, first of all, it's high risk and viruses change a lot. So vaccines is something that most companies want to, would much rather do drugs and vaccines because it's high risk. And again, even when you come up with a solution like the Zika vaccine, a lot of times the, the disease disappears by the time you get there. So Vaccine development is one of the most high-risk parts of one of the most high-risk industries there is. But these companies said, hey, listen, we're, we're good citizens. We understand this. We're in a crisis like you are. We'll, we'll, we'll turn on a dime and work with you. So typically, it takes years to develop a new vaccine. We developed a vaccine in months because one of the keys was mRNA, which is a whole new way of doing not just vaccine development, but a whole new, a whole new way for life sciences. MRNA came out of federal funding under Bayh-Dole. This is a great example of how the, how the system really works as opposed to what the theorists think. Worf had it, Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, had an MRNA uh, process, and they were using it for all, all kinds of things. But a woman scientist at the University of Pennsylvania got the idea, hey, maybe this could really help on drugs. And she kept working on it, working on it, and couldn't get couldn't figure it out. 
uh, this is this is again why I'm a person who likes entrepreneurs as opposed to collectivism, because without a person, this never would have happened. And a lot a lot of people don't believe that. And once once success is there, they they all claim credit for it. But this woman worked for ten years. She was actually downgraded at the university because she couldn't get enough grants in, and she couldn't get her theory to work. But she was determined not to give up. She stumbled into a colleague at Boston University, and they got together and figured out, hey, now we know how we can make mRNA so it actually be applicable to humans, not just animals. And they got a, got a patent, one of these evil patents. They got, got there. And so what happens? Basically, under our system, the people that typically license the early stage high-risk technologies like mRNA are small companies like Moderna. Moderna licensed their technology and BioNTech licensed it abroad. Now, Moderna worked for 10 years with no income, no income on mRNA because it looks so promising. So when the COVID vaccine, when the COVID crisis hit, Moderna said, hey, we've got something on the shelf now that really could be promising. We don't know if it's going to work. And Operation Warp Speed said, okay, we're going to partner together. This is an emergency. The government will help you develop it. We'll help, help you, we'll help you actually produce it. And the other thing they said was, and we will guarantee, if you can get this approved by the FDA, we will buy so many doses. So here's the other thing that people, the, the, the critics say, the government negotiated the price up front, okay? So that was all done. So we, we get a back, couple of vaccines out. In fact, I got the Pfizer vaccine. I was delighted to do it. We get the world's leading vaccines out. We, and, and suddenly the critics pop up and say, oh, my God, patents are evil. Uh, the reason that everybody can't be vaccinated is because these evil patents are stopping people from having enough vaccine. Well, the problem was you have to produce the vaccine. And also mRNA is particularly it's a particularly a, a complicated it's manufacturing. It's very complicated to manufacture. Yeah. So anyway, let's fast forward. All this happens in a couple months. It's a miracle. When the Biden administration comes in. They have the world's leading vaccines handed to them, and they're already being distributed. In fact, President Biden and, and Kamala Harris got vaccinated under the Trump administration. Okay, nothing wrong with that. So what do they do? One of their, one of their biggest successes now is, in fact, the COVID vaccine. A few months after they come in office, the same people attacking Baidol are attacking the patent system worldwide. And they're saying it's because of these evil patents that we don't have enough vaccines and you're killing people. The Biden administration agreed with that. And they said, and, and the, the original proposal was any COVID therapy, we're not going to take your patents away. We're going to take your know-how away and give them to everybody because wouldn't that be fair? So, you know, again, the, the Chinese actually had mRNA as one of, the, one of the things they're trying to get for industrial espionage. And now we're just going to give it to them. Uh, it's all, it's, it's like I said, it's a key, not just for COVID, for, but for the life sciences. So let's fast forward a little bit. What's, what's the big problem in the world today? The world is awash in vaccines. The African CDC has said, please don't send us any more vaccines. Vaccines are wasting hell because we don't have refrigeration. We don't have transportation. We're having cultural issues. Please don't send us any more vaccines. The other thing is the Indians have actually stopped ex exporting COVID vaccines because there's no market for it. Uh, you may remember like a year ago with a lot of fanfare and, and God bless them, somebody, they actually set up a COVID-19 vaccine manufacturing facility in South Africa. It's going out of business because there's, because it can't get any orders. So what are we doing? The World Trade Organization uh, has decided with the Biden administration's approval 
that we're going to take vaccine, take take this the mRNA technology away, give it to our rivals. India, actually, China wants to get into this deal. They're calling it developing countries, and China's trying to make sure that they qualify, who can not only use it internally, but also export it. So we're giving away our crown jewels that came out of public-funded research because of entrepreneurs, and it, it just makes you insane. In fact, if you'll indulge me for one second, um, I, I've got a, I, I got a quote here. There was a, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz, who just wrote this in the Washington Post last week, and it actually ties together the whole marching thing and trips. It's, it's the same people. And, and what they want to do is they, they want to get rid of the patent system. And here's how's this for a great idea. Have the government run drug development. I mean, let me, let me just read you what he wrote. This is a Nobel Prize winning economist. This is what he wrote last week. While the patent system has enabled drug companies to make billions of dollars, it has hindered production of vaccines, contributing greatly to their lack of availability in developing countries and emerging markets, and furnishing ample opportunity for the virus to mutate to the more contagious, more dangerous, more vaccine-resistant variations we've seen. And we, the public, are paying fourfold. We pay for the basic research that allowed for the development of mRNA vaccine. We provided massive assistance to help drug companies bring the vaccines to market. We pay high prices for the vaccines and other medicines publicly and privately. And now the disease has festered and we can pay continuing health and economic costs. But there are alternatives beyond public funding of research on and testing of drugs, such as a public-funded monetary prize for scientists who succeeded in making life-saving drugs and vaccines. For years, Senator Bernie Sanders has introduced legislation toward that end. And there have now been discussions at the World Health Organization on how such a scheme could be implemented globally. It's past time. I mean, this stuff just astounds you. And it's like they've, they've learned, they this happened right in front of our eyes. I mean, did, did people miss the COVID? <laughs> did you miss the vaccine pandemic? Uh, you know, where were these people? And it's it's just it it just makes your head explode, but this thing is likely to actually pass. And and back to your other point, they're saying okay, we're going to restrict it to COVID vaccines, but we may expand it later to everything else. We're giving away our crown jewels for no purpose. It is not going to increase vaccine production. You you, you there's two there there the problem is not vaccine production, but the but we're going to help China and Russia with some of the, our key technologies compete against us. For nothing. And, you know, this whole there's the other idea they have, which is which is related is they they've, it's the same people. These are the same people behind the marching position and the, and the trips waiver, the same people. For years, they've said we need to decouple R&D from markets. Now, what does that mean? What it means is the government will now decide where you want to fund drugs, which drugs we need. The government research will be going for that. It won't have anything to do with markets because markets, you know, markets are so unfair. You know, who knows what these private sector people are doing? But it's the high-minded people in Washington who have the loftier view who really should be in charge of drug development. Now, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. For somebody who's done pharmaceutical drug development her entire career, I'm sitting here like just the chills are going up and down my spine. And and, and I'm going to move on to the next question because I really don't want to talk about that thought anymore. <laughs> well, that's our world, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. So let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Joe, um, I know you have substantial experience shaping the U.S. government's innovation-oriented tech transfer approach. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the consulting work you've been doing for other nations like South Africa that are looking to pass their own version of the Bayh-Dole Act and also 
What's changed in the global tech transfer landscape since you were in the trenches, so to speak, on these issues? Well, luckily, despite everything we just said, there are people actually who are paying attention. And uh, South Africa is one of my favorite examples. Um, This goes back a number of years. I just started my consulting business, and I got a call out of the blue one day that South Africa had sent a team out to look at best practices in commercializing government research. And they went worldwide. And I live in Bethesda, Ohio. I'm actually a native of Washington, D.C., but I moved out here in the wilderness. And so they assumed I was in Bethesda, Maryland by NIH. And I had had to say, no, no, no. I couldn't be far away culturally or, or geographically. But what they did was they sent out a search team to identify what would be a way of having South Africa commercialize its own technologies as, a pay, as opposed to just being dependent all the time, which is, what, which is actually what these other people have in mind for the developing world. You'll always be dependent. We'll, we'll patronize you. Uh, we'll give you what we think, we think you deserve. South Africa said, no, we need to get off this. So they had a team went out and they said, we identified by Dole as the best practice. And that was a huge cultural change for South Africa. And this was being done on the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party. So I said, geez, you know, if I can help you guys, I'm happy to do it. Because my view is the more people they're, they're doing innovation, the better. Um, the more people that have a patent system, entrepreneurship, free economies, uh, a, a democracy, uh, this is, I think, one thing that's, that the Chinese are running into. You know, they're trying to have entrepreneurship, but but entrepreneurship without political freedom doesn't go very far. And now you've seen they've turned on the entrepreneurs. And and so I think, you know, there's a limit to how far you can get pretty far copying other people. But once you start making your own technology without entrepreneurs, without individuals, not collectivism, without individuals, innovation doesn't work. So basically, South Africa... Asked, they, asked, they said, we're going to do a Baidol thing. And they asked me to come over and talk to them. And uh, I said, sure. I thought I was just flying over to talk, you know, do a university lecture. And I met my friend, McLean Sabond, at, 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 in Cape Town. And, you know, I've been flying for like 15 hours. I wander off the plane and he says, uh, you're actually talking to our parliament tomorrow morning. Oh, my. You're the, you're the first witness. Well, that's oh the first my. thing I knew about that. But it, it was great. So they have passed the Baidol Act. Uh, I think they're actually doing pretty well, considering because again, you know, South Africa is one of those countries where um, you, you're you're trying to develop a free economy. You had this horrible um, legacy of, of I mean, you think we had racism here. I mean, they you know that was this is a lot more recent, but they're really trying to build a multiracial democratic society. And again, they got clobbered by COVID. I mean, they were much more devastated than we were. Um, I saw Thailand has just developed a Baidol Act. So there's a number of countries which I think are seeing now that despite the rhetoric you're hearing these other people, that without intellectual property... Oh, let me just back up again. When we were passing the, the South Africa Act, the same critics went livid with South Africa trying to do a Baidol Act. So they, they, they wrote an article. It's like an all-star paper of all the people on the other side called, Is Baidol Good for Developing Countries? And so they're saying, oh, no, no, you shouldn't be patenting your technology. You should be putting it in the public domain. And I'm thinking, how in the world are you going to develop an economy if you're giving all your technologies away, if you're a developing country, you know, I mean, how in the world would you ever do that? It's insane. So uh, you do have countries now that I think are looking at this, say, look, we don't want to be dependents all the time. We really have to get up and actually start competing. And I think, again, you have to have a patent system. I told the South Africans, it's not just the patent system. You have to have, you have, to have a stable legal system which goes back to what we were talking about here. If we make our legal system unstable, if it looks like 
for political decisions, you're going to say, okay, we will misuse Bidol because it's going to help us in the fall election. Then you're a third world country. That's how third world countries work. Um, and so, you know, once you once you lose that confidence, in fact, government is a, is a reliable partner. And the TRIPS waiver is a great example of that. Who would ever trust the government again? If there's another pandemic, who's going to do an operation to warp speed? Because you've just turned on the very people who saved you. Exactly. So, you know, I, I, one thing that we're doing with the Baidu Coalition is we really want to be advocates, not just here, but internationally, because there are certain things you have to, they're foundational for innovation. And the principles go across any culture, any country. There's certain things you have to do. Now, we don't tell people, you know, you have to adopt this to your own your own circumstances. Um, India is actually looking at a Baidol Act. You know, China's got a Baidol Act. Um, so I, I think you know again our system our system does work. Is it perfect? No, it's only better than every other system. So um, this is something I have a real passion about because it's really critical. I mean, this is not just some obscure law. This is foundational to our economy. And and the other thing I'll say. Um, we're, we're right back again. Our economy's on the brink. Uh, we're in serious, serious trouble. And I think people are recognizing that, not just with gas prices, but things are unraveling. And that's what it was like before Baidol. For Baidol, we said, let's go back to the foundation. The founding fathers put intellectual property even before the Bill of Rights, Article 1, Section 2, right up there up front. Now, this is when the U.S. when the US, got, the U.S. is basically a developing country. We were basically selling raw materials to Europe. And the founding fathers said, we just like South Africa, we've got to get higher up the value chain. We've got to give incentives for individuals, not collectivists, individuals to take risks. Remember Thomas, uh, Thomas Edison famously took 100 experiments to get a light bulb to work. And when he did it, a, a, a student years later said, well, how did it feel to fail 100 times? He said, I never failed once. It was a 100-step experiment. Exactly. That's not collectivism. Most people gave up. That's an individual who just refuses to quit. And that's what drives our that's what drives the world. That's what drives our economy. And if we forget that, we're going to join the rest of the world. Uh, and, and that would be a lonely, lonely place to be. So um, I'm really hoping we can you don't have to keep learning the same lessons over and over again. But I guess I guess apparently sometimes you do. Yeah. And, and that leads me, Joe, to ask you. Are you optimistic about the next 50 years of tech transfer? What are your thoughts? Well, luckily, I won't be here for the, for the next 50 years of tech transfer. Well, let's assume you are. Let's so let's assume you are. Well, I'll tell you what. You have me on your, if I am here for the next 50 years, you have me on your podcast again. Um, I'm optimistic by nature because I've been through this before. And it was really, really hard passing. Bidol was the first pro-patent bill passed by Congress in decades. So we went up against an existing culture and changed it, not because of me, not because of Birch Bayer, Bob Dole, but because we brought in the entrepreneurs that actually knew the subject matter. And we had the data to really show that our, this, this is better than the alternatives. So, I, I, you know, there's no reason why we can't succeed. But the thing that we fail at is a lot of times those of us in the, in the profession talk to each other all the time. Well, we've convinced each other. But like I said in the beginning, most people don't make things anymore. So they're susceptible to these things. Oh, my God, you're being exploited. Uh, look how horrible this is. These people are making money off vaccines and have public support. Oh, this is really terrible. And unfortunately, we live in a, a culture which has become a victimization culture. 
you know, we're basically, you know, who's ever the biggest victims, you know, so it goes to the front of the line. And uh, you can only run that. You can only run that as long as you have a rich country. Once you don't have a rich country, victimization doesn't cut it anymore. So I am optimistic, but I'm also kind of frantic because it's like this is so obvious to me, having been around this before and looked at the alternative. Um, and the alternative is staring us right in the face. I mean, what these people are advocating has failed every time it's been tried. It's Animal Farm. It's an, it's George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, all over. Yep. And it, I, I'm sure where Animal Farm is not taught in schools anymore. But when you have a Nobel, when you have a Nobel winning economist, write what I what I just write what I just wrote in the Washington Post. You're thinking, where do these people come from? Um, uh, anyway, so um, I am optimistic, but it's it's a fight and. Uh, it's a fight we can't avoid. You know, those those of us who have actually been through this and benefited from it have a have a moral obligation to stand up because this is this is really critical. And if you get it wrong, it's going to be wrong for a long time, and it's going to be a high high price to pay. So um, I, I I'm going to do everything I can to certainly tell people, hey, listen, we've been to this fork in the road before, and uh, you don't want to go down the other road because it's it's a long dark road and it doesn't lead to a good place. Definitely not. And and given that, what do you think tech transfer professionals can do, whether in, they're in the private or the public sectors, to, to help uh, resist this assault going on? They've got to stand up and start defending themselves. I mean, we've got to start. There's two things that sell policies, stories and facts. The other side is using emotion. They don't have any facts. But they have lots of emotion. We go back with we go back with facts. Well, facts doesn't trump emotion. We need to actually start telling the stories like that inventor, like that researcher with the University of Pennsylvania. Um, that, that, you know, these people who have spent years and years, Jim Allison at the University of California, Berkeley, human immuno- immunotherapy. The guy was ostracized on campus for 10 years. Now, that's easy to say. That's between now and 2032. You're ostracized. People think you're a nut. The, the tech transfer person, Carol Moore out there, who actually had a patent on this, was being told, get rid of the patent. Why are you wasting our money on it? They kept licensing companies and companies go out of business. He changed the world. He won the Nobel Prize, not like the economists, because he actually did something useful. It's the Jim Allison's and the woman at, at the University of Pennsylvania that drive our country and supported by people like Carol Wamora. We need to honor those people. We need to respect what they're doing. And the results are right there. So I think we've got to start telling the stories about how does innovation actually work? It's not, it's not exploitation. It's people taking risks. And more likely than not, the risks are going to fail. Um, that's the great thing about our, our society is we incentivize people to take risks. We don't guarantee you success. Under Baidol, if you, if you try to commercialize a, a government-funded invention and it fails, no one feels sorry for you. The government doesn't come back and say, hey, Lisa, you really tried hard. Here's your $10 million back, kid. That's not how things work. So, again, it's, it's kind of a scary system uh, as opposed to collectivism where you have sort of enforced mediocrity across the board. But um, mediocrity doesn't get you very far for very long. So uh, I'm pretty passionate about uh, rewarding excellence and, and taking risk and entrepreneurship. And that's what makes us different than a lot of the rest of the world. So um, I think we need to celebrate that. But we need to talk to people, to the media, like, like the fact checker in The Washington Post. He did a fair job. He looked at both sides and he did a fair job. And I think we just need to be bold enough to actually stand up and say what we think and not be intimidated by people attacking us as being exploitive and heartless and all the other things are because we have the moral high ground. And, and I, I refuse to concede to people who are actually you know, spouting this stuff. 
they assume this moral high ground. They don't have the moral high ground. People are going to die under what they're talking about. They're going to be they're going to be devastating consequences of the economy. And uh, when we did the when we did the uh, 40th anniversary of Buy Dole, we had Betsy DePerry, who was one of my favorite people. And, at the, and years ago, when she was speaking at, a, at an event, she was the last person on the program. We had Birch Buy, we had the president of of, of uh, Bio, we had people from the patent office. And Betsy DePerry got up, she turned around and hugged Birch Bai and said, but for your law, I would not be alive today. She was a woman who was dying of cancer, that, that no treatment was working. And they used an experimental drug from the University of Michigan, which saved her life. And, and that's what we're talking about. So the reason I do this is because of people like Betsy DePerry. And we, 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 need to, we need to make sure that we stand up for people like that because so what we're talking about now is really a really critical thing. This is not some academic exercise. This is not some polemic exercise. This is people, people's lives and livelihood. And uh, a, a final, final story I'll tell you is I, years ago when I worked at IPO, Don Banner was the patent commissioner. And Don and I were walking around D.C. one time, actually outside the, patent, outside the Commerce Department. And, you know, they have all these great sayings on the side of the patent, on the side of the Commerce Department, including Lincoln's quote on the patent system, actually fuels of interest to the fires of genius. And Don Banner said, nowhere will you see carp now that the U.S. always has to be number one. And that to me was shocking because I grew up as a, a boom, you know, boom generation kid, uh, baby boomer. I just assumed we would always be number one, but we're not. No one's, no one's assumed, assured of that. If you stop forgetting what made us great, we'll lose that greatness. And it's going to be a high, high price to pay. So, um, you know, I, I'll get off my soapbox, but um, we have we have to stand up and defend ourselves. We just have to. Well, Joe, I know I speak for a lot of people. I want to thank you so much for all that you do to champion and protect by Dole and for all your efforts. I know it's it's very important and meaningful to you and it's your passion. And. Uh, thank you again for being on the podcast. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And if any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, the reach, reach me at, at Joe at by B-A-Y-H Dole, D-O-L-E coalition.org. And we welcome new people to join. So if you believe in what we're talking about, uh, we'd love to have you on board because uh, we can certainly use some more people in the trenches. And I'll look forward to being on this broadcast 50 years from now when, when you have when you have me back again. I will. It's a date for sure. And, and somehow I have a feeling you and I are going to be talking uh, before 50 years from now. But uh, until then, I look forward to it. And thank you so much again, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate it. Always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, 
and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.